It's a who's who of Texas politics, and it happens over one weekend each September. And we're there broadcasting live from the Texas Tribune Festival. This is the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Today we're coming to you from one of the most iconic streets in Texas, Congress Avenue in Austin, where thousands of political movers and shakers from across Texas and the nation have descended to discuss the state of the Lone Star State and our future. From immigration to criminal justice, voter participation, local control, and the shrinking political center, it's all on the table. So pull up a chair as our special edition of the Texas Standard takes to the air after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this September 28th, 2018. It's a Friday, and normally that would be cause enough for celebration for obvious reasons. But we are celebrating something different today. Now, you may have noticed there's some noise in the background. We're broadcasting live today from Congress Avenue in downtown Austin, just a few blocks away from the Capitol. And you look the other direction down the street and right there on the marquee of the Paramount Theater, the occasion for our live broadcast a welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival. Folks here at TribFest Hub watching us as we go live statewide. Oh yeah. That's, that's the way we say howdy here in Texas. And uh, of course, this is an annual event that's become a kind of ground zero for everything politics in Texas and beyond. As Texas Tribune CEO and co-founder Evan Smith explained to me a few years back, and it, I think it's still my favorite way to describe this event. T uh, Tribune Fest is a kind of South by Southwest for political junkies. Thousands of people attend. It used to be a conference. Uh, it used to be at a conference center on the UT campus, but it's become such a thing. It's now taken over several blocks of downtown Austin for the weekend. And, and you know, it's not just Texans, but major figures from national politics too, in large part, I suppose because Texas has such an outsized footprint on the American scene. There's John Kerry, the former Secretary of State who delivered the keynote last night. Representative Beto O'Rourke will be here tomorrow. Former Senator Bill Bradley, former EPA Administrator Christine Todd Whitman, Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, Senator Jeff Flake is here, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi is here, Republicans, Democrats, mayors, lawmakers, educators, technology innovators, business leaders. In fact, I suppose as we get started, it's important to point out that this weekend is really about more than just politics. It's all about the state of the Lone Star State and a wide-ranging conversation about where we're headed. News is made at the Texas Tribune Festival, and joining us here in the center of the action, some people who definitely know news and Texas. Nancy Barnes is the executive editor of the Houston Chronicle. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. And from our nation's capital, Anna Palmer is here as well. She is a senior Washington correspondent for Politico and co-author of their twice-daily newsletter, Playbook. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thanks for having me. And finally, Mike Wilson, editor of the Dallas Morning News. Welcome back to the Texas Standard, Mike. Thanks very much. Let's start by looking uh, at this congressional race that's gotten most attention in Texas this cycle. I say congressional, we're really talking about the Senate election between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Last week, the Cook Political Report moved this race into the toss-up category, noticed. And they think, uh, obviously, 50-50. I'd like to start by going around the table here and get a sense of how each of you reacted to that news. Let's start with you, Nancy. Um, 
You know, I think this is all going to turn down, turn out to turn out. So, uh, and this is why you have them agreeing to having uh, public debates. Obviously, the history in Texas is uh, we don't vote very much, and Republicans are more motivated to vote generally than Democrats. There has been a huge uptick in voter registration, and so I think why you see this being uh, put into the toss-up category is there is some inkling that perhaps Democrats are more motivated and are going to turn out this year. It could be wishful thinking, but, you know, pendulum does swing from time to time in history, and this may be the time. Anna, th this is a race that's gotten a lot of national attention. Um, what, what's your take on it? Yeah, I think, obviously, the, in the nation's capital, we're always looking at Texas, and I think we've heard years and years and years that Texas is going to go blue and all this effort and money has gone into it and it hasn't, right? Think Wendy Davis, all this energy and enthusiasm. I think what's interesting this time, though, is you really see the money going into this race at a national level. level. Beto O'Rourke has been able to kind of have a national footprint and some of the ways he's attacked the politics. I do think, uh, like Nancy was saying, it's turnout. I was talking to some Republicans yesterday about this, and they are concerned that this could be a 2016 a presidential size turnout for Democrats, and Republicans feel like they need to be ready for that. Mike, do you buy the, the toss-up uh, scenario, or what? I do, for the same reasons Nancy gave. I mean, I really see this race as one of the most interesting in the country, and in a sense, a, a battle for the soul of Texas. I mean, you couldn't have two more different visions for the kind of state uh, that uh, that we want to have and to see uh, as much uh, sort of support uh, grassroots support for the Beto O'Rourke campaign uh, has been um, re revelatory and and I think certainly to to all of us and to, to Ted Cruz but and yet uh, Cruz is a national brand mm -hmm. uh, sitting senator and uh, has also has serious support but just a very different approach and in in the discussion of Democrats potentially taking control of the House or even the Senate after the midterms how much do you think potential gains in Texas factor into that conversation? I think they definitely do. I think there's just a number of seats that have never been considered kind of swing seats or in play. Whether you look at Judge Carter, whether you look at uh, Mr. Culberson, there are some of these rates that if Beto O'Rourke, if they can kind of go on the tail of the, that kind of a groundswell on the ground game, there is a lot of seats here that Republicans may have to spend a lot of money where they haven't even had to think about them before. Nancy, you know, I, I think about for most of the, certainly most of the 2000s, Conservatism in Texas has been defined by policies designed to cut regulation and create jobs. I mean, the, the governors do road trips to promote that sort of thing across the country. So even with the Trump administration's significant tax cuts, uh, what do you think about the long-term trajectory of the president's appeal in Texas, given the effect of tariffs and uh, the looming uncertainty with NAFTA? Well, that's a big question. You know, Texas is still, you know, to understand Texas, uh, you have to know that it is a state of blue cities surrounded by red oceans, right? Well, so that's an important, uh, Houston, uh, San Antonio, Dallas uh, are, are all blue cities. Uh, you get outside and it gets red very quickly, and that's a very big you know, population. Now, the city's uh, population have been growing, so you know, maybe there'll be some impact there. I don't see there being significant change in policy in Texas until you have a change in leadership at the top. Uh, everybody in uh, Texas, not everybody, but almost has been sort of driven to the right uh, and they feel that they need to go right in order to survive politically in Texas and until that is no longer true, you're not going to see a change in terms of regulation in Texas. Now, but I have seen, as I've said before, you need to watch for you know, these moments in history when the pendulum swings and we never really know when that's going to be. This might be that time. 
I want to ask a, a sort of a jump ball question here because I was looking through the uh, Texas Tribune Festival uh, catalog at all the different discussions. You've got immigration policy. You've got uh, gun violence. Uh, issues uh, uh, related to diversity. You've got uh, vote hacking. You've got local control. You've got this uh, relationship between uh, the state government and, and the municipalities. How to deal with massive growth? I mean, this state has been growing tremendously in recent years, and a whole lot more. So I want to put each of you on the spot. Uh, top issue facing Texas as we move in toward that legislative session. I think funding of education. Uh, is right up there. Uh, not one that you mentioned, but this uh, tension uh, between the state's approach and, and local communities' approach to getting education funded is, uh, I think, an important one for this session. Do you think that people really, and people in the in the state capital really understand that as a as a central issue? It's hard hard to imagine they don't. Now that doesn't mean that the uh, that the legislature will will take a different approach because though we're talking about a potential shift. Uh, at the at the U.S. Senate level, right. uh, for now, the most conservative wing of the of the party controls state government. Uh, and I know, of course, uh, um, you don't spend most of your time in Texas. But of those issues, what would you imagine to be the biggest challenge facing Texas, as you see it from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously these issues are are ones that every state is kind of dealing with. This is a very big state, so you know, one of the things that we've focused on a lot. I don't know that this is something that on the state level there might be some uh, some issues, but definitely immigration reform is one of the things that we are are focusing on. I don't know that the state's going to take that up, but I imagine that uh, language on it is going to be something that's going to play big into this midterm election. Nancy, what do you think? Actually, I'm going to uh, say education as well. I think you don't understand uh, how huge these school districts are and the inability uh, that they have to really get uh, students to college readiness. It's a significant problem all across the state, even in some of the best school districts. And the business leaders in all the major cities will say their major concern is having students who are, are ready to either go to college or coming out of college ready to work at this, with the skills they need. As news editors, I mean, and, and and, and reporters, and I certainly understand that, but do you think that state lawmakers are focused on, I mean, think about the last legislative session and how much issues like the bathroom bill dominated the discussion. I appreciate Nancy's point about business leaders' role in this. I had lunch, my publisher and I had lunch with a, a very prominent local Dallas business leader who was telling us that he's gathering together a consortium of heavyweights specifically for the purpose of lobbying Austin on, on this point. So uh, people who are trying to uh, raise the next generation of, em of uh, quality employees mm -hmm. uh, in Dallas are very concerned about this and have some, uh, have some skin in the game. That's the voice of Mike Wilson. He is the editor of the Dallas Morning News. Thank you so much for stopping by, Mike. We certainly do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Anna Palmer is senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Let's say thanks to Anna Palmer. Thank you. And Nancy Barnes, the executive editor of the Houston Chronicle. Nancy, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank the you Texas for having us. Yes, he's been monitoring the talk of Texas from his spot here at the Texas Tribune Festival on Congress Avenue. Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Having if, fun? Yeah, if only there was anything to talk about today. Of uh -huh. course, no. We have the exact opposite problem this Friday at the Texas Tribune Festival. The energy is palpable, and so is the electricity on social media, particularly 
related to Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination following yesterday's remarkable hearings. That was uh, riveting. Absolutely yeah. Something riveting. to be discussed for decades to come. The hashtag delay the vote is trending. The term American Bar Association also trending oh. after the ABA has called for an FBI investigation into the claims against Kavanaugh to and to postpone, yes, uh, delay the vote. We're also hearing from our friends and listeners on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Texas Standard there. Eileen McFowl has this to say about Kavanaugh's confrontational performance. She says at this point, it's not about he said, she said. This is about whether the nominee has the character, temperament, and thinking skills to be one of nine people appointed to a lifetime job on our nation's highest court. She says Brett Kavanaugh's own words and behavior yesterday showed that he is not qualified. That's one pers perspective we're seeing out there closer to home. Reaction to tonight's gubernatorial debate between Greg Abbott and Lupe Valdez, and right. also the postponement of the Cruz O'Rourke debate. Yeah, that was supposed to take place in Sunday. Houston, yeah, uh -huh, on Sunday, postponed uh, probably due to the Kavanaugh confirmation fight. That's Wells Dunbar. He's our social media editor. He'd love to hear from you, Texas. Tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar, back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Screening can lead to early detection. Men age 50 and older are advised to discuss screening with their physicians. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com. Broadcasting from the Texas Tribune Festival on Congress Avenue, this is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. When people go to vote in midterm elections this November, they may be thinking about any number of serious issues. Certainly in border states like Texas, immigration is likely to be top of mind. That's certainly what some of the state's most motivated activists are counting on anyway, because their future in the country could depend on it. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval reports. Tis the season for political activism. For Bertha or Jimmy. Whether it's knocking on doors, making calls, or registering voters on campus, Houston youth are taking action. One of those politically active 20-somethings is this guy. My name is Franklin Enriquez. Enriquez is a 23-year-old junior at University of Houston. He just switched his major to political science after first pursuing more pragmatic degree paths. People would say engineering, do engineering, that's where the money's at. You know, just don't become a hippie, just do math, math. <laughs> Enriquez says he's much happier in his current degree plan, and he'd like to work somewhere like the ACLU someday. But for now, he's got a lot on his plate. Two jobs, school, plus... I uh, volunteer also for United We Dream, and recently I've been involved with the Harris County Civic Engagement. He's part of a youth task force, joining a new coalition of organizations to boost voter turnout, even though he himself can't vote. Why? I am also a DACA recipient. Like 11 million U.S. residents... Enriquez is undocumented. So I was born in the capital, San Salvador. His mom brought him to Houston from El Salvador when he was eight, and they stayed. Even though Houston was safer and had more opportunities, growing up undocumented meant uncertainty. I um, was trying to get good grades, involve myself in school, trying to basically seem like the exemplary student. But in the back of my mind, it's like, you know, 
it's all going to be in vain. Beyond the threat of deportation, Enriquez didn't have a driver's license, a social security number, things that make getting scholarships, working, and enrolling into college possible. Then in 2012, DACA was created, offering protections for children brought to the U.S. during a certain time frame. And it was like a relief. I was really happy. I was really excited. My mom, my mother was crying. She was happy about it, too. But that happiness is now on pause. The future of DACA is murky. After being rescinded by the Trump administration more than a year ago, courts have ruled to keep DACA renewals going. But no new applications are being accepted. Many experts believe the Supreme Court will end up making the final decision on the program's legality. Resending DACA was a frustration, disappointment, anger, sadness, a lot of worry. But also it motivated me like it started like a spark inside me to like, you know, do something about it. Like electric reminders, and I did, I did mention... At a co-working space east of downtown Houston, 10 or so community organizers, including Enriquez, gather around a white table and discuss plans to register voters at local high schools. for registering students in their campuses. Sitting at the table gives him the chance to speak not only on behalf of dreamers, but also immigrants, legal and otherwise many of whom, like him, can't vote, but call Houston home and are working to recruit allies who can vote this November. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. If you're just joining us, we're live at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. This is an event that's all about the policies that will shape Texas's future, but it's difficult to talk about the future of Texas without discussing the future of Mexico and vice versa. You don't have to explain this to Roberta Jacobson, that's for sure. She's the former United States ambassador to Mexico and a true veteran of C Street, 31 years at the U.S. State Department, as I understand it. Ambassador Jacobson, welcome to Texas Standard. Thanks very much, David. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the kind of welcome. Now, you were the ambassador of Mexico from April 2016 to May of 2018. How did your job change over that period of time? Well, I, I had worked for six secretaries of state, six presidents, um, seen transitions before, but I don't think I'd ever seen a transition quite like that. And it changed dramatically in terms of the role of the U.S. ambassador. Um, this is an administration which doesn't seem to credit U.S. ambassadors very much, doesn't seem to listen to them as much. And so, obviously, with the rhetoric that had filled the campaign um, from President Trump, uh, calling Mexicans rapists and criminals, that made the job uh, considerably harder and, and different. Um, there's very few thing that, things that Mexicans all agree on, but one is that they will not pay for a wall. Um, and I think Texans understand better than anybody the, the way that issue is fraught. May I ask, why did you decide to leave? You know, you get to a point in your career, you hope for, for most of your career, including my time as ambassador in the beginning of the Trump administration, to have some, some impact, to have some influence. Um, and you stay because you hope that despite policies that may not be to your liking, which has happened to me over my career, 
you're going to have some influence. You're going to be able to communicate with the White House, with the State Department, with secretaries. We had many secretaries come visit. And I got to a point where I both disagreed with the policies, but I also felt that I wasn't having the influence I could have. And you do the cost-benefit analysis mm -hmm. of could you have more influence outside than in. Right, right. Well, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO they call him uh, right. in Mexico, he'll become the president of Mexico on December 1st. From a diplomatic perspective, what are the first steps you think the U.S. should take to get off on the right foot with his administration? Well, uh, even before December 1st, and, and time is running very, very short, um, I feel strongly that, that a renegotiated NAFTA with all three countries of North America mm -hmm. is critical, and it's one of the ways to start off well, including with the new president of Mexico. Um, but another is to have conversations that are respectful um, and don't result in tweets or uh, outbursts uh, that revert to you know, yelling about the wall or criticizing Mexico for um, narcotics or security when there's no way we can fight the opioid crisis or any of our other problems without cooperation. I, I have to ask you about something, though, because when you were sworn in as ambassador, you said that the opportunities for bilateral cooperation have never been better. And in fact, we have seen an agreement, at least on that part of NAFTA, between right. Mexico and the United States. If you were sworn in today, would you make the same statement about opportunities? a great question and I think that I would still see the opportunities as enormous, maybe not better than ever. Um, I think the opportunities were better when we were moving ahead with TPP, which I think was the updated NAFTA. Mm -hmm. I think the opportunities were better when we weren't calling each other's names. But I still think there's a, you know, I believe in that relationship. Um, I believe in the bilateral relationship. I simply think that even though the U.S. and Mexico have come to a, some form of an agreement um, to update NAFTA, it, it's not going to flourish with our Congress or be as effective unless it's a trilateral agreement. Roberta Jacobson is the former ambassador to Texas's largest trading partner, that's for sure, Mexico. She's currently a Pritzker Fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And she has certainly uh, done a lot of time at the State Department. Ambassador Jacobson, thanks so much for your time here on the Texas Standard. Thank you so much. We're coming up on the bottom of the hour. That means it's time for the Texas Roundup. Stick around. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas executed its 10th inmate of 2018 Thursday night. Daniel Acker was put to death for the 2000 kidnapping and murder of his girlfriend, Marquetta George. His execution was the second of two this week. Troy Clark was put to death for the 1998 murder of Christina Muse the day before Acker. Kristen Houle is executive director of the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, a statewide advocacy group. She says the state hasn't carried out back to back executions in a while. That hasn't happened in our state since November 2012, and we're concerned about the uptick in executions in the state this year. There are still six more executions on the calendar for 2018, and that's a big jump compared to 2016 and 2017 when the state executed seven people each year. Hule says one reason for the increase is that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals isn't staying as many executions. That court granted six days in 
in 2017 and seven stays in 2016. In 2018, however, the court has granted only one stay. Despite the uptick, Hule says fewer people are getting the death penalty in Texas. She says over the last several years, only four people have been sentenced to death. The Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, more commonly known as MALDEF, is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports the legal agency began right here in Texas. MALDEF was born in San Antonio in 1968. It was headquartered in the Alamo City before moving that headquarters to California in the 1970s. Vilma Martinez was the third president of MALDEF. She says it was created to fight racial injustice. Mexican-Americans were being denied educational opportunities, denied employment, very much second-class citizens in our own country. One of Maldes' most prominent cases is Plyer versus Doe. The 1982 U.S. Supreme Court decision struck down a Texas law that barred state money from being spent on undocumented students in public education. Now all children attend public school for free regardless of citizenship status. Thomas Sines is the current president and general counsel of MALDEF. He says today the work continues. Today we're challenging SB4 here in Texas. We are defending DACA. MALDEF will mark its 50th anniversary tonight with a gala in downtown San Antonio. Joy Palacios reporting. Tonight, Republican Governor Greg Abbott and his Democratic challenger Lupe Valdez face off in their first and only debate ahead of the November general election. It's being held in Austin. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Cluffin Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. We're broadcasting live from the Texas Tribune Festival in downtown Austin on iconic Congress Avenue. During these highly partisan times, you might be wondering what happened to the political center? Whatever happened to that willingness to work together despite party affiliation, get things done? The Texas Standard's Jill Ament found out that experts agree the center is definitely not holding. The question is, can it be put back together again? Elizabeth Seamus is one of those experts. She's a political science professor at the University of Houston and specializes in electoral behavior and political psychology. She says the center on the national level is definitely disappearing. We see increasing polarization being on opposite sides of the issue. Um, and even when there is some apparent overlap or agreement on policy. There just seems to be this really um, lack of incentive and also lack of motivation to compromise at all. Seamus says research suggests a heyday in party tribalism has a lot to do with that disappearing middle. You can't give any ground to the other party because you don't want to give them an advantage, but it really is becoming this... Um, you know, ingrained sort of identity with people that, you you know, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, this is your side. When it comes to the disappearance of the center in the Texas legislature, it's something that didn't happen overnight. <laughs> you want it in a short version or a long version? I mean, I've been hanging around that building for um, 31 years now. 
Hugh Brady is director of the Legislative Lawyering Clinic at the University of Texas. He says the Texas legislature of the 70s and 80s, while dominated by so-called moderate business Democrats, still had a center, so to speak. Its motto was, what was best for Texas's economy? And that was the common thread up until the late 90s. The Texas Senate becomes Republican by 1997, bare majority, but but majority Republican nonetheless. Um, But there's still kind of this, I hate to call it an agreement, but there's still kind of this attitude of we're not going to be too far to the right, we're not going to be too far to the left. Brady says it wasn't until the Republican takeover of the Texas House in 2003 that we started to see the bottom of the Texas business moderate center fall out. Tom Craddock is the speaker and, um, you know, Craddock is determined to keep a Republican majority, whatever that takes. But even even under Craddock, it was, you know, there was not a lot of legislation on abortion. Um, there was not a lot of social issue legislation. It was mostly political power legislation. And then President Obama was elected and the Tea Party was born. And I mean, it just all is shot in t- 2010. Texas local politics became nationalized. It's now the person is a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we're not friends, I'm voting against you. And that's when the center really dropped out. Brady says the Tea Party was more or less the end of Texas business moderates. And those social fights over abortion and immigration started to take center stage, making the legislature even more partisan. The University of Houston's Elizabeth Simas agrees. Social issues tend to be more divisive. The average citizen is not an expert on trade policy and, and economic policy. So, yeah, those social issues do be the, do tend to be the ones that parties try to use most to divide people. Um, they, they, you know, they make for an easier soundbite and an easier um, packaging of a message. Seamus says media fragmentation has been cited as something that's also contributing to this division. You know, it used to be what you had, you had three news channels to choose from, and that's what you chose. And now with um, the diverse options that people have, you know, talk radio, you have all these different internet platforms, you have all these different competing um, streaming and channels, um, that now media has become much more fragmented. And so people can choose sources that are more aligned to their interests. But Seamus says polling data shows that when you take the conversations outside of those sound bites or packaged messages, that middle ground among citizens, it's still out there. When we make things black and white, yes or no, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-gun, not pro-gun, you know, that yes, people look really divided. But again, when you have more in-depth conversations and when you look at polling data that asks people more about specific policies related to these things, you start to see more agreement. So if the middle is still there, is it too late to bring it back? Brady and Seamus say a step back to civility might be a pretty good start. In Austin, I'm Jill Ament for the Texas Standard. Well, here at the Texas Tribune Festival, it seems everyone's here. Michael Avenatti, the attorney, he's here. And again, he seems to be everywhere at the same time somehow. We're live at the Texas Tribune Festival, and the Texas Standard continues in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. We're broadcasting live today from the Texas Tribune Festival in the capital city. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. We've been exploring common political ground, or the lack of it, a troubling issue, especially considering that the key to breaking the deadlock may be something that has been awfully hard to do here in Texas, get more participating in the democratic process. But there does seem to be at least one issue where Texans from across the political spectrum are finding common ground. The Texas Standard's Alexandra Hart explains. Texas has long had a tough-on-crime reputation, and the numbers back that up. Texas is seventh in the nation when it comes to the incarceration rate. 891 people are in lockup per 100,000 in the state. And we've long led the pack in number of executions, too. Since the death penalty was reinstated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976, Texas has executed more than 550 inmates. That's including two this week. But attitudes about criminal justice reform, even in Texas, are shifting. And lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are starting to agree that something needs to be done about the state's incarceration rate. I mean, I think it started with costs. We tripled our prison population over a period of just a mere 15 years. That's Doug Smith. He's senior policy analyst for the nonpartisan Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. And by about 2007, we realized as a state that it's completely unsustainable, that we were just going to, if we continued on the path that we were going to go, that we would have increased our population up to nearly 170,000, and we'd have to continue to build prison facilities. He says over the years, there has been some progress in reducing the state's prison population. There are about 12,000 fewer inmates now than there were in 2012. And in that time, the state has also closed eight prisons. But Texas still leads the nation in the total number of inmates in state prisons, about 145,000 people. A lot of that is driven by just antiquated drug policy, that we continue to incarcerate nearly 7,000 people every year just on low-level possession cases, that we're arresting nearly 58,000 people, we're gobbling up jail bed county jail bed space, and we're cycling people in and out of the system because we deprive them of the services on the front end. Smith says that's due in part to failures in the state jail felony system. That's a system that was created in 1993 with the intention of being an alternative to sending certain inmates like low-level drug offenders into state prisons. It was meant to divert that population into rehabilitative programs to reduce the likelihood of reentry into the system after release. But Smith says that was never properly funded and those inmates ultimately didn't have access to programs to help them. But a rehabilitative approach, rather than a punitive one, may be coming back into favor, even, Smith says, among conservatives. We polled about 600 uh, conservative voters, and we asked them questions about what they would like to see happen when someone is arrested on charges, uh, low-level charges like drug and property crimes. And by and large, more than 70% of the those polled said they would support a lower penalty for people uh, brought in on drug charges. And more than 80% favored shifting people into community-based treatment as an alternative to regular confinement. 
The Texas Standard has reported that lawmakers have already met this year to begin addressing problems with the state jail system. It's expected to be a top criminal justice priority for the upcoming 2019 legislative session. In Austin, I'm Alexandra Hart for the Texas Standard. If you've only been able to vote for the past decade or so, you might not remember a time when voting wasn't done on a computerized machine. There's a conversation, or a question really, that's moved parallel with computerized voting machines, and that is, can your vote be hacked? It's a question that was put to the test in the most recent election cycle. After Russia was found to electronically influence the election, though not the voting machines per se, well, the solution of paper ballots has crossed some minds. Though there is always an issue with any type of voting ballot when you get right down to it. Hanging chads, remember those? So here to talk with us today on the vulnerability of voting machines and ballots, Hovab Shakam. He is a professor in the computer science department of the University of Texas at Austin. He specializes in computer security, and he's been a close follower of the voter security issue for over a decade now, first in California and now here in Texas. Professor, welcome to Texas, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so how vulnerable do you consider uh, the Texas voting systems to be? I think the question we need to ask is not just how vulnerable the actual systems are, but how much confidence can voters have that their vote really is recorded and counted just as they cast it. And it's a challenging problem for voting machines specifically because we want voters to have that confidence while also not being able to take away from the polling place a receipt that lets them prove that they voted a particular way because if they had that receipt then they could be coerced into voting. What's the, what's the challenge in providing a receipt? Because I totally understand what you're saying. You're, you're talking about a perception that the vote counts, right? That your vote counts. So why not have a little scrolling receipt on the side of the device? The receipt that you can't take home, because if you could take it home, then you could prove to somebody else that you voted a particular way, at which point somebody else could come to you before the election and say, vote this way or I will uh, break your knee, which <laughs> okay. is something that we don't want. Yes, we definitely don't want any knees broken. Uh, how is it, uh, when we talk about the vulnerability of machines, is it, is it the machines themselves vulnerable or are we talking about the state network for gathering the information, really? It's both. We, we use computers in elections. Uh, we use them from voter registration and ballot definition all the way to counting and reporting and auditing. We're not going to stop using computers in elections, and different computers induce different uh, risks in the election process. I want to ask you something, because you just said we're not going to stop using computers in, in elections. A lot of people are saying, why not return to a paper ballot? I mean, we have this need for speed, obviously, with this perception. But do we need to be processing the vote as quickly as, say, the media demands, for example? Voting on paper ballots is a great technology. So in the polling place, the voter can cast a ballot uh, on paper. Mm -hmm. uh, if you take those ballots and you bring them back to election headquarters, voters vote on many issues and we want numbers in time for the 10 o'clock news. They're going to be counted on a big computer, a scanner. Is that and really where the pressure comes to, to, to feed the media machine, or is there some other reason we're not going to an all-paper ballot, for example? I think the voters also expect to have a sense for how the election turned out pretty quickly now. Yeah, well, I totally understand that. So what are the ways we can secure our voting system as you see it? 
the main thing that we need is we need for voters to be able to tell at the time that they cast their ballot that it was recorded the way that they intended in a way that can't be changed after the fact if, for example, a voting machine decides to change records in its internal memory. And the technology for doing that that we have is paper. Voters see a voter verifiable paper trail, whether that's a ballot or the kind of uh, receipt printer under glass that you described earlier attached to an electronic voting machine. And then having that, that paper record, that paper backup, we can compare the electronic records that we can tally quickly and report quickly against the paper and we can audit and check that the machines are functioning correctly. Hobab Shakam is professor in the computer science department of the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks so much for joining us on the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. And we are fast approaching 49 minutes past the hour Texas Standard Time. Social media editor Wells Dunbar will be joining us once again in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. I'm Carrie Ann Holt, and I'm with Typewriter Rodeo. We write custom poems on vintage typewriters. Midterms. It's not a freight train barreling down. It's not a tornado threatening. But it is big. It is looming. And it kicks your blood up a notch in a royal that might just catch your breath. Midterms. Not the tests at school, the ones that see if you're learning. These midterms are the big ones, the life tests, to see what the country is teaching you. So study up, buttercups. Get that voting face prepared and that voting finger poised. This is a test you cannot fail. This is a test your life might actually depend upon. I'm Carrie Ann Holt, and I'm with Typewriter Rodeo. You're on Texas Standard Time. Support for the Typewriter Rodeo comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You know how this works, right? The Typewriter Rodeo is fueled by requests. So send us yours, and then listen each Friday here on The Standard. You can also lasso the rodeo anytime on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are served. And as we do each week at this time, let's check in with the Texas Tribune about the week that was in Texas politics. Editor-in-Chief Emily Ramshaw joins us now. Emily, good to see you. Good to see you. Very busy person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's a lot of fun to be here at the Texas Tribune Festival, but I think it's safe to say that a lot of eyes of Texas uh, have been on the Kavanaugh confirmation process. Just incredible testimony yesterday. Uh, Thursday, uh, two Texas senators were directly involved. What happened? Sure. Well, we had both uh, John Cornyn and Ted Cruz weighing in, you know, very aggressively, basically saying that Kavanaugh needed to be confirmed and fast. And actually, you know, there's breaking news as we are sitting here. Basically, the Judiciary Committee has taken its initial vote. Again, both Cornyn and Cruz, uh, you know, pushing aggressively to uh, confirm him. And it looks like it's a freight train. Uh, Well, so what do you think about the, the formal confirmation 
vote. Uh, it's been described as still a battle uh, as we speak. Do you think that's going to come next week? You know, I think it could come very soon. And we have uh, Jeff Flake, who was considered, you know, really a question mark now, saying he's voting to confirm. Uh, it looks like there are a couple of other uh, senators who are on the fence, but it is looking increasingly like this is going to blow right through in the next couple of days here. Jeff Flake is uh, here at the Texas Tribune Festival. He is, is right? slated to be here at the Texas Tribune Festival. Again, it depends on when they call this vote for yeah. We are hoping that the vote is at a point where he can still be here to, you know, opine on this for us well, in person. This has had an impact, actually, uh, you know, this whole Kavanaugh process on on a lot of things in Texas politics, you think about, for instance, we're just, we've just been hearing that the debate scheduled for Sunday now has been postponed. Yes, there's been so much uh, drama in Washington that Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke are no longer going to hold their second debate here. Again, this just happened a few minutes ago, so we're hoping it's postponed and not canceled. But yes, it is off for Sunday night. Uh, the Texas Attorney General has uh, been back in the news this week, this time over the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, what's that all about? So you might be surprised to know that there is a Texas state law that students need to participate in the Pledge of Allegiance. They need to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, there was a student in Houston who basically declined to do this. It was sort of her version of taking a knee. She would not stand during the pledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lawsuit over this. Her family has filed suit. And uh, Ken Paxton, the state's AG, has intervened, really wanting to uphold this Texas law that that students must participate in the pledge. Now, that lawsuit was filed, if I'm not mistaken, about a year or so ago. Uh, and now we have the Attorney General weighing in. Um, and we know that the Attorney General is uh, running for re-election, too. You know, it might help. I mean, the, the Attorney General is embattled. He's been dealing with his own court cases. He needs a lot of red meat in his corner ahead of this election. And so I think this is a, a pretty good opportunity to weigh in on the flag, particularly around this conversation about kneeling uh, and the NFL. This is, a, this is a good red meat topic to hit. Uh, we're about to go into the social media segment, but Emily, here at the uh, Texas Tribune Festival, is there an event or conversation that you are particularly excited about? You know, I think there's going to be a lot of attention around Michael Avenatti's conversation this afternoon. Uh, he is the lawyer who's been representing women in the Kavanaugh case, uh, Stormy Daniel Daniels, uh, you know, Trump's accuser, and also uh, families divided at the border. So he has a lot of Texas connections. That's this afternoon, so you should tune in. That is the voice of Emily Ramshaw. She is editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. Emily. Thanks so much for, uh, for putting on this show and having us down here so we can broadcast live from the Tribune Festival. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Joining us once again here on uh, Congress Avenue. Hello, hello. Terrific uh, uh, space. It's the hub of the Texas Tribune Festival. It's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Yeah, very exciting to be here and lots to talk about. As you and Emily were just talking about the Kavanaugh confirmation continuing to dominate social media. The name, as y'all were just discussing, Jeff Flake. That name is trending after the Republican Arizona senator signaled that he would support the Kavanaugh confirmation. There's a video that's gone viral, David, of so, uh, on social media of protesters confronting Flake in a Capitol elevator, sharing stories of their own sexual assault while the senator stands there silently. That's uh, being shared widely uh, across Twitter and Facebook this morning. Uh, in Austin, O.F. Finneran is sounding off. She's tweeting at Senator Flake. She says, how can you pretend to that Judiciary Committee senators and you yourself 
have done everything possible to resolve uncertainty around Kavanaugh. Please, he does not have the temperament for SCOTUS. And lots of people, uh, we're, we're seeing this sort of like two-pronged conversation now. There's, you know, the allegations we, we've heard against Brett Kavanaugh. Right, right. And then after his performance yesterday, uh, some uh, Democrats and people opposed to his nomination raising this question of uh, bias and temperament uh, because he was, uh, you know, very animated and very emotional in his defense yesterday. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, something you mentioned a little bit earlier, the American Bar Association uh, now yes. weighing in on this. Yes, they have called for uh, an FBI investigation into the uh, allegations against him and have called to uh, similarly postpone the vote. So, quite honestly, uh, history being made this weekend, and we'll just have to watch to see how everything plays out. You know, it's having reverberations here, as we just heard again. The confirmation led to the cancellation uh, of uh, the Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke debate. And I guess they're going to try to come up with a new date for that. It uh, sounds, yeah, it sounds like what they're planning on doing. And of course, another debate is going on, the gubernatorial debate that is on tonight between Greg Abbott and Lupe Valdez. You know, when this thing was scheduled for a Friday night, there was some talk that it might kind of get lost in the shuffle, and that may be borne out by some of the comments that we're seeing on our Facebook page. James Art Exum says he's pretty attentive to politics lately, yet I didn't know this was happening, and there's just so much happening here in Texas, nationally in D.C., and here at the Texas Tribune Festival, you know, I'm seeing this tweet from Celeste uh, Gracia. Is she still here? Yeah, she says that the public radio geek in her has won, and now she's about to be mesmerized watching a live broadcast of Texas Standard. (laughs) I hope it was mesmerizing. You know, we've, we've tried our best. So... Lots of cool stuff going on this weekend, and we've really just begun to scratch the surface, quite honestly. You guys have been great, by the way. Thank you so much for stopping by and uh, visiting us as we've been live on the air from the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. It's going to be a terrific event, and if somehow you, you can't get down here to Congress Avenue in Austin, maybe next year. It's always a terrific, uh, terrific experience. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. We're headed into the weekend, and what a weekend it's going to be. We'll be back here on Monday, and we hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, including Mr. Dunbar here, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. PRI Public Radio International.